Have you ever heard of scrupulosity? This is a mental health concern that is impacting more Latter-day Saints than you think. Scrupulosity is religious obsessive compulsive disorder, where individuals are hyper-obsessed about their worthiness and repentance. Sam Baxter, a former bishop, sat down with me to talk about his lifelong struggle with scrupulosity and how he got treatment. You can watch this interview for free in the Mentally Healthy Saints Library by going to leadingsaints.org 14. This gets you 14 days free access to Sam Baxter's interview about scrupulosity and 25 plus other interviews about ministering to those who struggle with mental health. The content is priceless for leaders. So visit leadingsaints.org 14 for free access. So you're checking us out as maybe a potential podcast you could start listening to. I know many of you have been listening for a long time, but let me just talk to the newbies for a minute. What is Leading Saints? What are we trying to do here with this podcast? Well, let me explain. Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization. A 501c3 is what they call it. And we have a mission to help Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. Now, of course often means in the context of a calling. It may mean in your local community, your work assignments. We've heard about our content influencing all sorts of leaders in all sorts of different contexts. We invite you to listen to this episode and maybe a few others of our 500 plus episodes that we have out there. Jump in and begin to learn and begin to consider some of these principles we talk about on the Leading Saints podcast. Here we go. All right, listen, everybody sit down, buckle your seatbelt, and really make sure that by the time this episode is done, that your podcasting app doesn't automatically delete it, because you're probably going to go back and listen to it again, twice, three times, maybe more. I had the opportunity to sit down with Kurt Brown. Yeah, he has a pretty cool name, but that's not the whole story with his name. Uh, We'll get more into that in just a minute. But Kurt Brown is a former mid-single adult ward bishop, did some phenomenal things, disrupted culture in such a positive way grew the ward attendance that they were bursting at the seams and even got in trouble a few times for uh, for maybe doing uh, too good of a job as a bishop, but uh, then got his name on a list somewhere. And now he's headed off to Tacoma, Washington to be the mission president there starting in July of 2023. Now, we, we start out the episode just talking about his unique background, being a convert to the church and the rough childhood he had and being a young single adult and a mid-single adult himself, being married at the age of 35 and uh, I just love it to hear when the atypical individual gets called to serve as a mission president or as a bishop or whatnot. And uh, Kurt Brown is one of those individuals for sure. And I'm so excited to have him, have him serve in this way. Now, our conversation about repentance, how he handled repentance, how he reached out to the, the individual, how he saw himself not as a gatekeeper, but as a welcome committee. These are transformational components. So important. Then. I should probably just start talking about it so you can hear it for yourself. So here is my interview with Kurt Brown. Today I'm with uh, Kurt Brown. How are you? I'm doing great. All right. We got to just start with the name. This is... (laughs) And the, the irony of this is nobody cares but us. Nope. But hey, guess what? We're going to tell the world. Can you start a podcast with topics that nobody else cares about? I know, but we're, we're going to do that day. <laughs> so obviously, we both have the same name, spelled the same way, K-U-R-T. I mean, can you believe people put a K at the end of That's that an, thing? I know. Or an I in or there sometimes? Or a C at the beginning, oh, yeah. Come on, people. Get with it. So shout out to Davis Smith, who connected us. Yeah. So he's 
preparing to leave as a mission president in Brazil. You're preparing to leave as a mission president in Tucson? Yeah. Uh, or no, uh, Tacoma. Tacoma, sorry. Tacoma. Him and I met each other at the church administration building in the hallway. We both looked like deer in the headlights. That's actually how we met. That's awesome. And we've become fast friends. Nice. And that was orchestrated by the heavens so that of course. this could happen. So he puts us in touch. We get on the phone. We're talking. We make stupid dad jokes about, you know, you've never met a Kurt, you know, younger than 40 and I happen to be 40. I right. And you then, are the youngest Kurt I've ever met. Well, hey, if there's any other Kurt's out there, it's, it's turning into a grandpa name. It is. Soon, so. I know. And then, we, you know, we're like, okay, let's get together. We'll figure out a time. You email me and I look at your email and it has your middle name is Harold. And my middle name is Harold spelled the same way. So we're both Kurt Harold. I, when you texted me that night, I thought you were putting <laughs> me on. I'm like, there's no other Kurt Harold anything in existence. Was yeah, like, I don't know if I sent a picture of my driver's license or what, but I was like, no, no, this is really my great grandfather, Harold Frankham. I'm named after him. Yeah. And, you sent me into a complete like <laughs> rabbit hole. I spent the whole rest of the yeah. night mathematically trying to calculate yeah, is, how many Kurt funny. Harolds are in the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> my dad said something in our family history. There's even this point where our last name got written down as Brown somewhere. So I almost became a Brown. I don't know. That would be, that'd be nuts. So it's sort of the hilarious, the typical two guys show up at a party with the same shirt and they're like best friends forever. So now we're <laughs> best us. friends forever. I mean, seriously, yeah. I've been looking forward to this all week. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what else we're going to talk about, but here we go. Anyways. So put yourself in the context. Who are you other than Kurt Harold? 51 years old, got married when I was 35, recovering Wall Streeter. When I was a kid, I wanted to be Alex P. Keaton. On Family Ties. Oh, yeah, You've ever yes. seen that show? He said, is that the Michael J. Fox? Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. And probably the most embarrassing thing I can tell you is when I was in eighth grade, I wore a tie to school every day because really? I, I wanted to be that guy, uh-huh. go to Wall Street, get rich. So I did. I went to Wall Street, did the whole Wall Street nice. experience, you know, and probably should have had a social life and some other things. <laughs> but you're a convert to the church. Co- family's convert like, to the church. Yeah. Tell us about your upbringing. Grew up in Northern California. My father was a football player, played in college, played a little bit of pro in the Canadian Football League was an elevator mechanic. Nobody in my family's ever graduated from college. Wow. And then my dad was like a permanent 18 year old and my mom finally got sick of it and left him. He was devastated. I stayed with my dad. How old were you? Daddy's boy. I was eight. And then a while later I was playing sports with a kid and my dad loved his family. And one day was like, you got to tell me how your family's so cool. And my dad had really been reeling from my mom leaving him and she should have left him. But I mean, he was reeling. And that's what led us to the church. And for a couple of years, he went on and off as an investigator, couldn't get his head around 14 year old boy, you know, being uh-huh. a prophet. I remember going to church with him and he still was really skeptical. He wouldn't even let me get baptized, you know, so. And you're uh, a young teenager at this yeah, point? Or, yeah, yeah. And we're just like going and, but it was, you know, it changed my dad's life. It saved my dad. And so much of my testimony was watching my dad go through that process. And Mm. he is an amazing man, Uh, just an incredible person, one of the most helpful, kind people that you can meet, you know, and just as a young person watching him from going like, you know, a lot of worldly things and then having this change, even as a young person, I could appreciate the power of that, Mm. you know, and then eventually he got remarried and, you know, here we are. So what age did you get baptized? So I was 10. When I got baptized. Same and time as your dad? Or no, no, no. Later. Okay. He made me wait. Oh, okay. Yeah, he ended gotcha. up baptizing me, but he wanted to be sure it wasn't a cult. He'd heard things. You know, so it was like <laughs> so, we, go so first. we went all yeah. the time. It was that we were fully active members of the church. It was kind of funny. And then in a crazy twist, a couple years later, my mother and my my younger sister went with my mom and lived with her. They joined the church. Wow. And so we had never been in a church when I was a kid. And then within a couple of years, both of my parents joined the church and they're now remarried to other people. And 
So yeah, it just, and it was funny, all those years went by and then later we were doing family history and realized that both of my parents' families had come across the plains as saints. Oh, wow. And somewhere somebody just sort of went inactive and that was it. Mm. And so we didn't really know that we had that connection with the church. It just wasn't part of our lives at all. Yeah. You know? So you went through the traditional youth experience in the church? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And mission was always on the radar? Eagle or? Scout, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And where'd you go on your mission as young men? A mission called the Canada Halifax Mission, which really went from like Northern Maine all the way to the North Pole. We had four Canadian <laughs> provinces. We had three time zones. At one point, I think it was the largest landmass mission in the world or something. Really? And it was, it was an amazing experience. I think now it's been folded into Montreal. I think it's all one Eastern Canadian mission now. Were you French speaking? Or? No, I was English, but we had both French and Russian speaking wow. uh, missionaries in the mission. And yeah. yeah. And I mean, pretty devout at that point. I mean, you're, oh, yeah. you're all in, right? Oh yeah. Good, yeah. good mission experience? Yeah, mostly. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, I've been thinking about it a lot recently, broke yeah, out my missionary journals recently with this new calling, Yeah, but wasn't sure I was going to go. My dad didn't serve a mission. No one in my family did. And I didn't know much about it. And I, I had a college, I was playing college basketball at the time at a small school in California and kind of lived for basketball. And I kind of felt like, I don't want to walk away from this. And it just really didn't have a testimony of, of being a missionary at all. Mm-hmm. So I felt like I should go though. I got my own witness. You got to go. And then when I got to the field, it was a train wreck. I just really, for like three or four months, I just was miserable. And then I called it. I was like, I'm going home. And I packed and called and said, give me a plane ticket. You know, I'm out of here. And, and my comp and my mission president talked me into giving it 30 more days. Really? You know, and I got a special blessing. And oh, that story's going to come in handy. <laughs> oh, and it was an amazing 30 days. It wow. was what I needed. You know, the yeah. Lord was merciful and, and helped me. And then by the end, they had to shove me on the airplane to get me home. Yeah. I just ended up loving being a missionary. And, but yeah, that was, you know, I was, you look back and you think as a young person, you're lucky you made it. Uh-huh. You know, you're lucky that you survived and did some good things, you know, because it's hard being a young person. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Anything else worth mentioning as far as mission or before the mission, your upbringing or whatnot? Does that- no, you know, it was, it was, um, you know, we've had some hard things happen, you know, some, you know, my dad married somebody who wasn't very happy, was you know, pretty abusive. And, you know, my dad was gone a lot and stuff. And so I was kind of raised by her in a weird sort of way. So it was, mm-hmm. there was some trauma there. And my sister really struggled. My, my mom passed away when she, my mother was only 45. So my sister was only 18. I was wow. just off my mission. Uh, really threw my sister into a major league tailspin, drugs, all kinds of stuff, was living on the streets. And my dad had gotten remarried. And so my sister and I were kind of felt like we were on an island a little bit. And I was trying to take care of her. And so I was uh, telling Davis when we went to dinner and met, you know, we kind of didn't know where to go, my sister and I. So we moved into an abandoned house. A buddy of mine, his family had a key to a house that they took care of. And the owners lived in another state and had for like a decade. And so like we moved in. You became squatters. Yeah. Went down, tried the power turned on, the water turned on, cleaned up the place. And my sister lived there like squatters, you know, oh, wow. no one knew. We just like totally kept this under the radar. And eventually my sister cleaned herself up and she has an amazing story of her own. She passed away when she was just 34 years old. Oh, but wow. By the time she passed, beautiful family, just had, had her third kid, mm-hmm. was working in the temple. Uh, as a temple worker had oh, really wow. her whole lo- her life had done a complete 180 and um, yeah, we miss her a lot, but wow. yeah. So, you know, we had some pretty colorful experiences, my sister and I, I like to say we have a little bit of a textured past, you know, <laughs> but I mean, there's just example of, of example of redemption for the, sure of had the power of that yeah. Jesus can change us. Yeah. Right? And even me, you know, I had an amazing <laughs> mission experience, really wanted to take my shot and go to wall street. I did. And what um, was it about wall street? I mean, just this 
perception that was created yeah. in the movies and yeah. things. I was raised in the eighties, right? So yeah. I was that eighties kid. Like I'm going to go to wall street, get rich. It's exciting. It's, you know, and greed is good. Yeah, the, yeah, exactly. <laughs> What's the movie? Yeah, wall street wall with street, Michael yeah. Douglas. Yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, when we had periods of my childhood, where we had no money. My dad was unemployed. Mm. I think I, uh, too much of my motivation was out of fear of running out of resources, you know? Mm -hmm. So I just felt like I didn't want to get rich to spend it. I wanted to make a lot of money so I could feel safe. Yeah. It was like a lot of my motivation, you know? And, but it seemed exciting to go to Wall Street. It was like a sport mm -hmm. and it was an amazing experience. I was a trader on the floor for several years wow. and got to trade derivatives and all kinds of fun stuff, cool stuff. But so the lifestyle go, was pretty wild. You didn't go the path of like college and getting the finance degree? Or? I did. I dropped out. I played two years of college basketball at a JC in California. Mm -hmm. Had a great experience doing that. We had a great team. Transferred out here. Thought I might play at the U for Rick Majerus. There was a whole oh, dead wow. end to that story, but that's how I got to Utah. And then ended up getting a, an academic scholarship to BYU. Spent some time there. And then I wrote a little investing program, a little trading program, because I was a massive stock market nerd. I, I should have been dating in Provo. I wasn't. You I was just dating it, your totally, yes, absorbed in this, you know. And my mission president, and we've been business partners now for 30 years. Oh, really? With your mission, mission president? president? Yeah. He seeded this strategy of this little trading program that I wrote. And at first we had all kinds of problems with it and I was freaking out and couldn't sleep and whatever, but we got the bugs worked out and it worked and we grew a fund, my mission president and I, hmm. and I stopped going to class and took off and went to Wall Street. That was, and so I didn't graduate from college either. And you're going to Wall Street to get a, an education, but yeah. you know, a, yeah. of hard knocks yeah. type of thing. Cause it was sort of like I had my fund and things were going okay, but I really wanted that real Wall Street experience hmm. and really learn how that community works and you know, just everything that comes with that, you know? And yeah. so here I go from Provo to Wall Street and it was a wild, wild awakening. I mean, the, the, the culture and the lifestyle back then in the early nineties, it's was, it was nuts. I mean, hmm. it was, you know, cocaine in the bathroom and, you know, all kind. I mean, everything you can think about in a movie is there. Yeah. I mean, it was like, so it was a little, it was a, it was a culture shock for me. I'm calling you, my dad. I'm like, man, this place is nuts. Yeah. You know, are you living in Manhattan? And so or? I was actually, yeah, back and forth between New York city and San Francisco because oh, our, okay. our investment bank was actually headquartered mm -hmm. in San Francisco, but I spent a lot of time on the floor there and I was single and I would just live on both coasts, had a place at both cities and wow. it was wild. And, and so what was your, your faith journey like at that point? You know, it's interesting without knowing it, I just slowly, because of all this traumatic stuff in my family, my sister, my mom dying, a whole bunch of stuff I won't bore anybody with, but like, I was just pretty numb and it was like, let's just go get my career going. And just kind of without even paying attention, I just slipped away hmm. before I knew it. I wasn't attending church. I wasn't, you know, and it wasn't, it had nothing to do with the church. Nobody offended me. Uh -huh. There was no doctrinal you still issues. Oh yeah. Just, it was just sort of like, it was maybe. totally inconvenient. Yeah. And this goes on for a while, for a couple of years. And then it dawns on me one day, I'm making all this money, dating supermodels or whatever, you know, and like, it, it's supposed to be so exciting and I'm just totally not happy, you mm -hmm. know? And you'd think because of my background as a missionary, I would understand why, like, yeah, but it's math, like, right? you kind of forget. And so I'm, but it finally dawns on me. Everything I'm doing is just for me. I'm the most selfish, like I could possibly be. I'm not helping one other human, you know? And so I started doing things like volunteering at Big Brothers, Big Sisters, going down to the soup kitchen and things like that. So I recognized that the selfishness was a problem. But then as you start to move back closer to the savior, even if it's just helping other people in any way, the light kind of starts to pull you in. Mm. And then at some point I realize, and I really do miss this. I miss 
actively having the savior in my life on a daily basis and the Holy ghost, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it was like, all right, I'm going to go and start attending church again and go in and talk to a bishop. And, you know, and I was like, this is crazy. I can't believe I am in even in that. I never would have thought I'd be in that, that position. So you mid twenties, late twenties, late twenties. Yeah. Okay. And you're, but you're still going back and forth doing the wall street. Yeah. Yeah. And finally, as part of that process, I thought, you know, I need to get off of the trading floor in New York. Like, it's just like, and it's just too much. It like, it grates on your soul a little bit, you know, just being around that all the time. And I mean, I could tell you some wild stories, you know, your boss expects you to take your clients to do certain things and get certain things and stuff like that, you know? And so you're just, it's a little bit compromising, even if you're on your toes, you know? So I knew some guys that ran a firm here in Utah an investment firm. And I asked them if I could come help engage with their firm and they, they let me buy a third of the firm. And so I relocated here to Salt Lake City and now I've never left. That was over 20 wow. years ago. And yeah. Was that a tough transition? Because I'm sure the money was good, right? In Wall Street or? It wasn't. I was ready. Yeah. I was ready. I might, you know, my boss is a great guy, you know, walked me to the cab the day I quit, tried to talk me out of it all the way down the elevator, all the way out to the taxi, mm. you know, just a good dude kept saying, oh, we'll give you this, we'll give you more, we'll give you, you know, and I just said, hey, Scotty, this it's not about the money. You know, I need my life back. Mm. You know, I need my life back. I need nice. some balance. I need other things, you know. And at this point, you're sort of back integrated in your routines of, of the church and things? Yeah, mostly, you know, but you know how that is. That's all kind of relative. You know, right. I look back at that period of my life and it's really unfortunate. I could have done so much more good in my life. I could have helped so many more people and been a more positive influence on the world. And mm-hmm. It was improving, but a man, I wish I had that. I wish I had that time back. I wish I had the chance back. Yeah. You know? So now you're back in Utah at this point and a young single adult, almost a mid single yeah. adult. What do you remember from that? that and, time and, and I had started thinking as I get into my early thirties, you know, I think I would like to get married. I think I would like to have a family, you know, and, and maybe the, the proverbial settling down, you know, and I was starting to feel it, you know, but honestly, totally dysfunctional about how to have a relationship. I mean, no good examples at any point in my life of like in my <laughs> family of having a good relationship and dated amazing people. And it was funny because after a couple of years that I went and saw a counselor for the first time, you know, I'm like, man, I need to go talk to somebody, you know, hmm. and I walk in and she, uh, she was a friend of a friend. She goes, you know, so why are you here? And I said, why, well, you know, I've dated so many incredible people. And they're all totally different. And the only thing they all have in common is, and clearly I'm the problem, you know, and she just laughed and she's like, well, we can work on that, you know, and it was good. It was a really healthy process for me to be able to go vent stuff that I never really openly talked to anybody about. But you got to a point where you were able to find the person that you married, but that was mid thirties. Yeah. Yeah. Got married when I was 35, met my wife, Katie, uh, at a dinner party that I didn't want to go to. I was, you know, I was in a state of mind of like, I hate dating. You know, I I was actually getting into that state of mind of like, it may never work. And frankly, I'm maybe fine with it. Mm -hmm. Like that's like mentally where I was moving towards. And then Katie and I got introduced to each other and almost didn't connect even then. And there's this whole long drawn out thing. And, and, you know, she had a career, she's a television reporter. I've been with NBC and and ABC and, but it worked. Hmm. It worked. She's a patient woman. Nice. Nice. And now, uh, that's about 15 plus years ago. Right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, so we got married, we met no five, got married, no seven. And I'm, you know, in retrospect, I just look back and I'm like, I'm just so grateful we made it. Like, I'm That's just, cool. you know, it's hard when you have two older people that have careers and have been through a lot and, you know, it's, it's, but she truly is incredibly patient and helped me learn just how to be a, a better husband, you know, yeah. just a better partner and team player. Yeah. So with that backdrop, 
you get this opportunity, this calling to be a mid singles ward bishop in Provo, Utah. Yeah. And this is a ward that didn't exist. You you were creating it. Yeah. So what's the story? Where does the story begin? Yeah, it's funny because Katie and I actually met in a YSA ward, but it was one of those YSA wards in Provo that like plays old. So okay. like the average age was like 29, <laughs> okay. you know, and there was probably 40 or 50 of us that were over 31. I mean, it, that was most of the leadership of the ward. And, you wow. know, there's these periods where there, some stake president comes through and does like a purge and kicks everybody out that's over <laughs> 31. I mean, this is a whole game that gets played, right? And that was us. We were in that in Provo. So now we're married and we've got two kids at this point and that's a whole crazy journey. And then I get a call one day from a buddy of mine and I've been working in young men's for like 10 or 12 years, which I absolutely love. Like uh-huh. young men's is the greatest calling in the church. And this buddy of mine says, hey, in our stake, we're thinking we're going to start mid-singles ward, a single adult ward, 31 to 45. And we need a bishop. And I'm like, good luck with that. If I think of anybody, I'll let you know, Uh you know? And he's like, why don't you come down and talk to us, you know? And I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me. And it was a ward that didn't exist, but it's in an area where there's a lot of singles that fit that demographic. And that's where Katie and I had lived. Like, that's how we knew that stake and knew the stake president Mm -hmm. and whatnot. And then, yeah, they said, we want to start this ward. We got permission from the church, but we don't even have a ward yet. I mean, it's nothing. No one even knows yet. So, you know, you want to take this on and get this started. Wow. Went home and talked to Katie. I told Katie, I'm like, there's no way we can do this. I was building a, a business. I had sold my ownership in another firm. I'd been a partner in for 13 years and we were building a new firm and it was going well, but I was really busy on the road all the time. And I'm like, there's no way, I mean, that I, I can do all this. You know, we're in the process of, a, we at the time were adopting our third child who was a special needs foster baby. Mm. And man, it was just insane. And I was like, I don't want to cheat the ward. Like, yeah. how much time can I actually commit to this? So, but my wife, she's the one with the faith. You know, I was kind of, I was kind of complaining to her and she's like, this is what the Lord wants us to do. He's going to make a way. So let's do this. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so what was, I mean, where do you even begin to start a ward? They had you and now you need counselors. Yeah. Is that the, yeah. The so, and, and the fun thing about being a single adult ward bishop is you can pick counselors from anywhere. Yeah. They said, you can pick somebody in St. George if they're willing to drive up here all the time. <laughs> we don't care, you know? So it's kind of a unique thing, yeah. you know? And that was a really fun process. And we ended up just, the bishopric, I mean, we're, we'll be lifelong buddies. I yeah. mean, we text each other on a daily basis still, you know, yeah. we've been released for over a year. And then what they do is they'll seed a new ward with some list of records. So we started technically with about 60 or 65 records. And, and, and they just tell all those people, you're going to this ward now. Yeah, we, that your records are going to be moved there, you know? And wow. it's sort of like there was one mid-singles ward in Provo, in North Provo at the time. It had been there for 34 years, that ward. And, but it never got real big. And so a lot of the brethren just didn't feel like there was a need for a second ward. But South Provo is really like an epicenter for single adult aged singles, you know? And, and why is, is it sort of the overflow from BYU students or? It's just there... interesting. You know, there's a demographic down there, a lot of townhomes, smaller houses, uh-huh. you know, condos, and there's so many in this one area. And then it's sort of like, you know, tangent to BYU. They, it's just a huge population of young professionals mm. down there. It's awesome. Like, like that's where Katie and I met and we had a blast living down there. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. So you get your counselors. Yeah. And get the records, get the 60 records. You get and here the records go. and see yeah. you Sunday. Type yeah. Thing. And it's sort of like, what do you do? So we decided we better market. Like people need to know we're That's, even this here. Is so, cause <laughs> most words don't deal. Nope. It's like, here's the boundaries. Yeah. If you live in here, yeah. you go to that word. Yeah. But mid singles, I mean, you had boundaries, right? Yeah. We had boundaries. We covered 11 stakes. But the, those mid singles could go to a, a geographic ward if they yep. wanted. And, yep. 
And so you wanted to market and see how many you could bring to you. Right. And it was no secret that there were a lot of people over 31 going to the YSA wards in South Provo. Uh So those stake presidents and bishops were trying to find a way to maybe, you know, gently get those people (laughs) to come over to a single adult ward. So there was a lot of vested interest in a lot of different people to have something be successful. So what we did at first was before we even started the ward, it was so much fun because we already had, Katie and I knew a lot of people in that demographic. So we had like a little think tank. We just got a little focus group together, had dinner and just talked. And we just said, tell us what the perfect single adult ward looks like. And it was so much fun. It was such a fun evening that we did a second one with another group of people, all referrals. And we just took tons of notes. Okay. Okay. Let me back up here. So, yeah. and this was, you held it at the church? Yeah. yeah. Just in, in, in the yeah, gym In there? the relief study room. Yeah. We or just came in, the in there. Side. Yeah. We just catered in some dinner and had 25 people in there telling us what to do. And then- how did you get the people there? Like uh, you just asked stake presidents to send? No, no, just from our network. Okay. Like, so we knew some single adults already because we okay. had come from gotcha. that community. And then I said, hey, listen, we're going to start this new ward. I want, the, I want the best single adult people you know to come and tell us what this ward should look like. Okay. So this is so crucial because I think even a geographic traditional bishop could hear this and be like, well, you know, our ward's different. You know, people just come, but yeah. no reason you can't have a dinner and just invite anybody and say, tell me what the perfect ward looks like. It was amazing. I mean, that feedback is so valuable. There's so much you can do with it as a yep. leader. Right? Yep. And the thing is, is even though Katie and I'd had the single adult experience, you're only going to know your own experience. Well, let's hear it from 30 other people, right? Let's, I mean, everybody's got a little different view on this and those two dinners And I think we maybe had 50 to 60 total people that came out and shared ideas about what the perfect single adult ward was, was some of the most enlightening conversation I've ever had. What were some of the ideas that you remember that came up? Well, a lot of it was more around attitude, you know, and I think a lot of us know this in the church that there's kind of two issues, right? There's doctrine and there's culture. Mm -hmm. Well, I think most of us feel like the doctrine is precise and yet the culture can vary wildly. And especially when it comes to being single. And honestly, the older you get and you're still single, there's a very special and unique challenge with that in our culture. And it was more of that attitude of what is this going, how is this going to feel? And that's what comes out time and time again, because there's an interesting dilemma, right? If I'm 35 or 40 or 45 and I'm single, whether I'm divorced or I've just never gotten married, we don't mean it to be this way in the church, but it's very easy not to feel at home in a family and it's nobody's fault typically, but, but it's different. I mean, I'm married now and I'm in a family ward and it's totally different. Yeah. And so it lends itself to accidentally marginalizing and ostracizing people. There's also, you know, I think most bishops and stake presidents are really, really well-intentioned. I do. I think they make major sacrifices and do their best that they can do. But accidentally, a lot of bishops have created problems for members. You know, whether they're going through a repentance process or they're coming back to the church or they're struggling with something or they have a faith crisis, you know, and that attitude, there's almost like this old school attitude of just like suck it up, have more faith and just do this blindly. Yeah. Here's the sign up sheet. Pick yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, but that's not anything about how the savior operated. Hmm. Nothing. You can't find anything in the savior's words that shows him being that way. And these are real issues. And so we needed to create a culture of 100% acceptance. And that was what really came out time and time again. So by the time we had our first sacrament meeting, we knew exactly what our marching orders were. We knew exactly how this needed to play. 
Hmm. And so the 100% acceptance, like, so how do you, what does the first couple of weeks look like walking into establish a culture, right? There's probably some benefit of you don't have the past imprint of culture. Yeah. In in fact, when we started it, we just decided we weren't even going to issue any callings, none. So for the first few weeks of the ward, we did, everything was a guest speaker and a guest teacher. Oh, wow. There were no callings uh-huh. because we didn't need a primary or young men's, young right. women's yet, right? Like we didn't need that. So you could just run a ward so we could all get to know each other. We had 60 records. On the first Sunday, 320 people came on the first Sunday and we had 500 plus after five months. Holy hell. I mean, it was, in fact, on the first Sunday, the cops came because people had parked all the way down the street in a gas station and a bunch of other places. I mean, it was, and you know, but we really had worked hard to get people to come take a look at this. My wife even made flyers and spent two days putting flyers on condo doors in South Provo. You know, like we wanted people to know we have something. And even on the first Sunday, we had lots of people that had not been in a church in three, five, 10, 15 years. They got a flyer. They heard about it. They said, I'm going to go check it out. I'm single. you know, whatever. And we knew the experience when somebody came in the door needed to be equivalent to what you would feel if you were in the presence of the Savior. Yeah. And that's it. There's no other goal, right? So how do you, what does that look like? Like when someone walks in, what do they experience? Well, first of all, just the language starting with the bishopric and then moving through all of the leadership simply is wherever you are, the Savior's arm reaches you. And Mm. I mean, wherever you are. And on a regular basis, we talked about examples throughout the scriptures and throughout modern history. Look at the apostle Paul. He was an apostle that, you know, arguably was a murderer. Okay. If the savior's arm reaches him, who doesn't it reach? And, and what happens, especially if you're alone is you, this, the adversary convinces us we're broken. It's the greatest to me. It's the greatest enemy of the gospel of Christ is the idea that somehow I'm different. I'm broken. I'm on the outside looking in. I'm not one of them. So the culture has to be a little bit like a, a, an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And if you've ever been to one, they walk in and they will celebrate somebody that's been sober for 12 hours. You can get a 12 hour chip at AA Hmm. and they will stand up. They will laugh. They will cry. They will hug you for 12 hours of sobriety. And we have this culture of like repentance and sin equals shame, but we should be celebrating repent. We should be celebrating the atonement. When somebody stands up and says, I'm weak and I'm struggling, that's actually the celebration because that's the beginning of the healing. That's what the savior needs from us to help lead us to joy. So the greatest thing that I can tell you about that ward is we had people that came and took smoke breaks during sacrament out in the parking lot, Hmm. right? They felt at home in that environment. If we can't talk about that, we have no business moving on and talking about anybody else. There should be no person that walks into our congregations and doesn't feel at home and welcomed and warm. That's it. Yeah. That's the experience. So we did this thing where every single Sunday, immediately after sacrament, we would break into what we called the visitor's meeting. And anybody could come into it. And right after sacrament, the ordinance or right after sacrament meeting? Right after sacrament meeting. Okay. We go right into the high council room because we were the last, we were the last ward of the day. So we had the building to ourselves. We'd go into the high council room and we would start. And I would say something or one of the counselors would say something and we would give this message. Whatever your background is, if you woke up this morning with a desire to do good and be close to the savior, you're in and you're back. And I can show you reams of statements from modern prophets around that exact message. When your heart turns to him, 
you are repenting. You might be doing something bad last night, but if you got up this morning with a desire to do good, you're here, you're Mm. in, you're not on the outside. Mm. We worked really hard to create that. Well, what it did was it attracted members that felt that way too. And when, when you, we would have a visitor that somebody didn't know, you couldn't believe the swarm of people that would go over there and welcome them. No matter who they were, what they look like, what their background was. And there was some heavy duty stuff, right? I mean, when, if, if, I mean, I could read you a list out of my journal. I mean, I dealt with the FBI, I dealt with, you know, I mean, heavy, heavy stuff, prostitution, child abuse. I mean, you name down that list. And yet I would lay my hands on their head, give them a blessing. And it would, I would be blown away every time at the love that the savior had for that person. And it was no different than me. And so that's the environment our congregations need to have. And it, it blows my mind that we move on and talk about other things without having that be the DNA of what we're doing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So in that, what did you call the meeting after sacrament? The visitor's meeting. The visitor's meeting. Sometimes so, it was a new member. Sometimes it was a returning member. It was, you know, so but you it was- would say uh, in sacrament meeting, all those that are new or visiting, we'll see in the high council room type of thing. Mm-hmm. And then they'd know to go there. Yeah. And you were- Big were, meeting. It was always big. And the bishopric was always there? Always. And and you sort of let off with that, with this message. Almost right? always. And, and so same this, exact message. This is so crucial because it's so, you know, I can see and I I've, I remember the YSA ward that I attended long ago was, you know, they had this new, you know, member meeting and it was like, you know, here's where you find the calendar of activities totally. and this and that, you know, the the housekeeping items, right? Totally. But, you let off with this message of this is our culture here, yeah, right? Yeah. I think that's such a crucial component of building culture yep. is you got to lead out with it. You can't yep. hope they find and, it And we would the take road. the whole hour. I mean, that was Sunday school or priesthood or whatever. Uh-huh. And we would go around the room and every person in the room, including the people that had been there from day one, whoever was in the room mm-hmm. would go around and tell their story. And it was wild. So brand new people. How, oh, brand new or people that had been Johnny, there forever. Johnny, what's your story? Yeah. You know, where are you coming yeah. from, right? And what happens is if you start off with that tone and with that message, walls drop and people right in that meeting would say, uh, this day is my first day back in church in nine years. Holy cow. Wow. And on most weeks, there are people just weeping in the room. Yeah. I mean, the programs of the church are all secondary to this. This is the point, right? Because the gospel is a message of hope. It's not, it's not a club, it's hope. And there are so many people feeling hopeless. And if, but if they could feel the Holy Ghost for real, they'd feel hope, Yeah, right? And so that meeting and then every sacrament meeting was focused on that. That's all we focused on. There was, there was no drifting outside the bullseye. Like it just wasn't, yeah. we just didn't do it. You know? And I want to underscore this point of the story. Like there's just something, there's a few words more powerful than tell me your story. Yeah. Right. And, and I, my mind goes to like in the garden of Eden where God says, Adam, where are you? Like essentially like you're gone. Like what's your story right now? Right. And, and so I'm just thinking about maybe that frustrated elder scorn president who's like, man, I, my corn feels flat. Like maybe take time in your core meeting and go around and say, tell me your story. Because yeah. when we hear each other's story, I mean, just hearing your story leading up to this, I'm, I'm drawn to that. I'm like, yeah, Kurt's a human here. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's yeah. more than just a Kurt Harold name here. This is, there's yeah. a whole different story. Well, and, and, that, and honestly, I mean, that, that's a, probably a good segue to something that I think was most shocking for me as serving as a bishop was those moments of real raw you know, vulnerability and intimacy in that room between a bishop and a member of the ward. And, you know, to me, when somebody comes and opens up, if we're not careful, 
our cultures created something akin to, you know, punishment at its worst, but even like other kind of weird shame gray areas, you know? And for me, I just felt like if the savior was sitting in this chair, I always wanted to sit just knee to knee with whoever was in there with me. And if the savior was there, what would he do when this guy comes in and talks about pornography or something way worse? This is the, what would be the first thing the savior would do? He would, he would weep with you mm. and he would put his arms around you and he would say, it's okay. You're okay. Right. I look at my little kids. My six-year-old girl comes into the kitchen. She's sad, crocodile tears running down her face and I'm mad at her. But the second she says, daddy, I'm so sorry I did this. Okay. You're a father. Like, yeah. I mean, right. And I'm, I'm a really bad mortal, right? What's the savior doing for us when we do things that we, sh- we know we shouldn't do? The compassion is so beyond what we are extending each other, not just in our culture as a church, the whole world. We're not extending each other compassion. And he is. And so I, I remember when I got set apart, Elder Roney said to me, he said, as we were walking to the parking lot, he said, just remember one thing. You're not the gatekeeper, Bishop. You're the welcoming committee. That's like all he said. Wow. And, you know, so when somebody comes in, my feeling is like they're going to vomit all over me, all this stuff. I mean, I had people that came in and hadn't seen a bishop in 20 years, like unload, right? And, and then they say, you know, I, I want to fix this. And they say, what do we do? And I'd say, I don't know. What do we do? And they'd look at me like, well, you're the bishop. You're supposed to know what to do. And I'm like, let's ask. Let's just ask, you know, and let's go on this journey together. Like I'm a Sherpa with you. Let's like go do this, you know? And my experience was over and over was that the compassion of the Savior is so much more than we're extending ourselves. And he's so much quicker to forgive us than we are ourselves or each other. And as bishops and and priesthood leaders, we have to be driving that so much more aggressively because we have made mistakes in our culture of maybe driving shame when we should be celebrating us owning our weaknesses, you know. Man, that's awesome. I love that. I want to, before we, we miss it, you talked about even in your sacrament meetings, you were on target. So yeah. just break down your sacrament meetings. What did that look like? How did you do that? Well, one thing we did was for three years, we'd never assigned one single topic. Not one time. It was carte blanche. When we called a member and we I said, hey, can you speak for eight minutes or 10 minutes? We'd say, you ask Heavenly Father what he wants you to speak on. The Spirit mm-hmm. will tell you. End of story. It's so good. You do that for general conference? I was going to say, I was just <laughs> going to say, if it's good enough for the 12, right? I mean- I think maybe that can make people nervous, Bishop Rick's nervous. It was amazing. Hmm. And we watched on a weekly basis, the spirit work through incredible members of our ward, people that came out of nowhere, people I, you know, we didn't even hardly know. The spirit would rise up and the themes and what would be pulled and touched on. So that was actually a really big part of it. For better or worse, probably to, you have to ask the members of the ward, but like I grabbed the microphone on a regular basis or one of my counselors did during a sacrament, maybe at the beginning or maybe at the end. And I would, I did this a lot. You know, I, early in the ward, I was interviewing people four nights a week. There was a lot of, a lot of people struggling with a lot of pain, a lot of pain. And I want to give people that chance to, to release that pain. So I, you know, you know, my wife will tell you, I was gone a lot and I would stand up and tell the congregation, you know, don't like you're carrying pain. Come see me and get it out of I promise you, Mm. come unload on me and you will find so much relief. And we're obsessed with this, like President Eyring, when he called my wife and I to be mission presidents here several weeks ago, he was so awesome. He said to us, 
we're a handbook crazy church. <laughs> and, you know, cute president. Oh, I got the title he's, of this episode. That's he's great. He's the greatest. <laughs> he is the most amazing human. So we spent like two hours with him and this was such a big part of the theme. And he's like, but at the end of the day, the handbook is not what we're doing. You have keys and you have the Holy Ghost. And your job is to be that arm of love that the handbook and all that is like, they're all just tools. And so when someone would come in, I would never, ever move into a conversation around, oh, this is what we have to do. Here's the checklist of penitence, right? Like, you know, no taking the sacrament. This, and the, I mean, this is like from the playbook, right? Right. That's ridiculous. This is not what we're talking about, right? The first, it's just, let's talk. And really, what do you think the Savior wants you to do? So I didn't tell people how to repent. We would pray about it together and they would tell me what their path was supposed to be. Mm. They have the Holy Ghost the same way I do. And almost, I would say nine times out of 10, they were spot on the money. They would submit to me and say, here's what I think my path to repentance is. And I'd be like, let's roll. Yeah. Let's do it. You know? And so I would stand up at sacrament and say, come in. And we would hammer this theme. And everything that we would highlight as a bishopric is you're fine. We're all struggling. Mm -hmm. Okay. Don't let the adversary tear you down. Right. Yeah. So this concept of you, you know, grabbing the mic every once in a while, I think is, you know, with leadership is almost synonymous with the word of presiding. And we hear it so often, you know, president so-and-so is there, he's presiding, right? It's entered the category of cliche that we don't know what it means or whatever. Yeah. But like in my mind, like presiding is being the person who has control of the meeting, not to make sure that someone doesn't get up and talk about wacko doctrine. <laughs> totally. Like who cares? Like, right. And how often make does sure, that even happen? Exactly. Like, exactly. But to make sure that every, no matter what happens or what is said at that meeting, that they feel that hope, they feel the redemption of yeah. Jesus Christ there. And so if that requires you to stand up and say, let me just quick note here. Like yeah. I need to make sure it's communicated what that person is trying to articulate to you as the bishop, you, you know, yeah. it's available for you. Jesus is for you. Right? Plus, plus I, I had under in my, in prior to being a bishop, I didn't understand what a bishop got to see and the breadth of pain mm -hmm. and struggle. I mean, you know, I, I've probably been a harsh judge of people my whole life, but no more. After I served in that calling, I look at people now totally differently. There's so much pain that we don't see from the person that's sitting next to us, you know? Mm -hmm. And so a bishop needs to be able to stand up and say, because you kind of end up having a feeling about your group. Because yeah. they're coming and telling you the most deepest personal things. It's sacred. And yet you also can then stand and help give everybody more hope because of what you're hearing from others. Because you're never going to be able to meet with everybody. And you start getting these insights like, wow, you know, seven out of 10 people coming in are beating themselves up about something unfairly. We should talk about this as a group. The other thing in terms of tone is we shouldn't be afraid to talk about things. We want to whitewash everything in our culture because we want it to be perfect, but that's not what's inspiring. You don't inspire me because you're perfect. You inspire me because of what you've done not being perfect. Mm -hmm. That's what's inspiring. So, and whether I should or not, I don't know. But when somebody would come in and tell me something, I would say, let me tell you some things I did when I was in my twenties and I was an idiot. Mm -hmm. Right. And they look at you like, wow, you're a bishop now. So somehow you, like you got it together. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's like, and I'm like, yeah, but this is real. This is life. And we're too afraid to talk about these things. We have to be able to stand up and say, I struggle with this and yeah. champion for each other. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I love the way you frame it of 
you know, we, we think of the bishop's office and sin and, you know, what sins do I got to go to the bishop's office for? We have sort of this unofficial list and, but to frame it as in, why don't you come in and just unload your pain? That's right. And I remember this one sweet moment where this, uh, when I was a bishop, a lady came in and just talked about the struggle she had with her mother-in-law. It wasn't a sin. And I was just right. like, I can like sit with you in this. That is, sounds really hard, right? So creating the bishop office as a place to unload pain is like so much, it uh, diffuses the shame yeah. of this isn't. And, and you, know, you and I both know, how many people do you know that have sort of faded away from the church or have a bad taste in their mouth about the church? And it was driven by some priesthood leader. Yeah. Like I lived in fear that somebody would walk out of my office and not feel hopeful and inspired. I don't care how you come in my door and how bad it is. Like I had a guy that came in and said, man, I got prostitutes every day for five years. Like, okay. Yeah. Even that guy should walk out my door and feel hope mm-hmm. and inspiration for the future. If not, was I a good bishop? He's, he may not come back. It doesn't matter what's in the handbook. Like right. that guy's got to walk out the door with hope, right? Yeah, uh, that's powerful. So let's talk more just about the whole repentance dynamic. And this is one I hope to create some more and more content about this because I've just heard so many stories across the the spectrum as far as how one leader interpreted repentance in that process. And it seems like sometimes I wonder, do these bishops even understand what repentance is or what Mm -hmm. it looks like or Mm -hmm. why we have it? Right. And so just like, as far as diffusing the shame and and instilling hope and you've, you've unpacked a little bit about that, but anything, any other guidance you Let me give you a couple more things on that. One is, is I have always been annoyed by priesthood leaders that insert themselves too much into the process. Mm. Okay. If Kurt Frankum comes to visit Bishop Kurt Brown, you're not answering to me, but too many bishops act like you're answering to them. Mm-hmm. We only answer to our savior. I call it the spiritual parole officer. Oh right? my gosh, man. <laughs> so I always explained my role as a Sherpa. Mm. We're going to the top of the mountain. I'm carrying some bags with you until you're good. Let's go. Right. Let's go. Like that's, I never, ever did an interview on the other side of my desk. I always sit with you. Mm. We are together. I am your advocate. There's a real major misunderstanding about this judge in Israel thing. Okay, yeah. There are times you have to protect victims. That's a big one. Okay? You got as a, as a priest leader, you got to protect victims. You got to protect the church. That's a bit, that, <laughs> that can be, that can from time to time. But those are rare. That's not most of the work, Right. Most of the time, I'm your advocate and your cheerleader, right? So that's number one. There's a, there's a mentality around this. We've got to get right, okay? But the second thing is, is anybody that creates with Heavenly Father, their own plan is going to buy into that plan more. So this whole thing with our little checklists about, okay, I want you to read your scriptures for 30 minutes every day and you can't take the sacrament and you can't go to the temple and I've got my, okay, who says I have the manual. You have the manual. Somebody's making this up. Okay. Like, and you might feel really strongly that this is like your way, but like, that's the Bishop's way. But what's right for Jill? What's best for Jill? Well, who's going to know that better than Jill? Like Jill and the Holy ghost can get there and I'm a Sherpa. So that's what I'm saying. I always sent people out and said, I want you to, I'm going to fat. We're going to fast and pray together this week. You can come back and you're going to present to me what you think the savior wants you to do. Wow. I mean, unless it was really extreme. And by the way, I mean, really extreme. I don't think priesthood leaders need to insert themselves and sort of take over. Look, there's members of our church are really 
high IQ people. Like this is a smart group of people. It's only going to hurt the process if I'm coming in and I'm dictating my biases. Okay. So I'm here to help you connect with the savior. This framework, I feel very strongly about. We had incredible success with this. It's inspiring for people. It's hopeful. It helps them learn how to reconnect with the spirit, which is the more important part of the process. Not my stupid seven item checklist. That's not the point <laughs> of the process. You know? So it's a big deal. I'll tell you what the third one is. Okay. What were the first two? Just to clarify. No. So setting that framework of, oh, I'm, okay. a, I'm a Sherpa. Gotcha. And you're going to tell me what okay, gotcha. is your path to repentance. I'm not going to tell you. Uh-huh. That's really bad policy. Love it. Yeah. Love like it. I, I, bishops think too, well, yeah, yeah, I got to be careful, but like too many bishops <laughs> think like it's all revolving around them. The third thing was almost discovered by accident, but it was a lot of what, like I told you my experience when I was on wall street and I kind of realized I was really selfish and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Do we have a minute for me to share one Let's example? I, and of course I'm not going to use this person's name, but I, so I had a gentleman, a brother in the ward come into me, incredible, highly intelligent, successful, good looking guy. One of the nicest guys you've ever met comes in, we're chatting it up one day and he just starts falling apart. And he says, Bishop, I'm a massive porn addict. And I'm like, okay. And of course you're going to hear that a fair amount, you know? And he's like, no, no, you don't understand. It's really bad. It's like multiple times a day, every day for 14 years. My parents have money. They've put me through programs. They put me through camps. I've read 23 books on the subject. They're sitting on my shelf. I go to 12 step, blah, blah, blah. I'm out of ideas. I'm just, I'm out of ideas. He was numb, just numb right? I'm a brand new bishop. I don't know what I'm doing. I used to go home at night and say to Katie, I'm not trained for this. I'm not qualified. Like there's no training for this. Like I don't, you know? Right. So I wake up a couple nights later out of a dead sleep in that little silly story they tell in general conference sometimes, which by the way, never happens to me. This is the <laughs> only time it's happened to me. And I wake up in the middle of the night and I've got this wacky idea and I'm half awake and I go to the bathroom and I like, I'm like, I got to remember that. And I make a note in my phone and I go back to sleep. So on Sunday, this guy comes in and I, I asked him to come in. I said, are you willing to try anything no matter how crazy it is? And he's like, dude, I told you, man, 14 years <laughs> and I'm so out of ideas. And I'm like, well, I got one for you. I'm like, let's see how much faith you have. And we were kind of laughing. He's just a great guy. And I said, first of all, it all goes out the window. I want the books gone, the 12 step gone, the camp's gone. The whole thing gone. Let's, we're done. We're done with this. There's no more meetings. There's no more, no more discussion about you being a pornography addict. Okay. Mm-hmm. In fact, this is where it got a little gray area is I said, the next time you look at porn, which sounds like it'll be within a few hours. I said, I want you to go and look yourself in the mirror afterwards. And I want you to not care. I want you just to look in the mirror and be like, oh, well, there's a lot worse things I could do in the world than see some images of naked people. <laughs> He's looking at me like, where are we going with this? Right. Love it. And I'm like, and then here's what I want you to do. There's one thing you have to do. Every single time you mess up, you have to do something nice for somebody. That's it. Just do something nice for somebody. Act of service. But here's the deal. You have to do it right then, even if it's three in the morning. Okay. I said, now you have to get a notebook and I want you to record every single instance. And he's like, geez, it's going to be a lot. I'm like, yep, get the notebook. Here we go. So this starts and a couple of weeks goes by and he comes back in and visits. He's got his notebook, no change, no help. He's like, Bishop, your idea sucks. <laughs> so a few more weeks goes by, he comes back, we do it again, no help. This goes on for a while. And I'm like, okay, this is a terrible idea and it's not helping at all. So then this guy moves for the summer 
He goes away to work somewhere, comes back. And I'm thinking, I haven't talked to him. He comes back at the at beginning of the fall and he comes into my office and he's like, I'm two months sober. Wow. I'm like, what? And he comes every Sunday. He comes and pokes in. Yep. Great week. Great week. Great. This goes on five months. Guy gets to five months. And then one Sunday he comes in, shuts the door, falls apart, devastated, bawling. Bishop was a terrible week, binge week, you know, whatever. And, and I'm sitting there next to him. And then I, I just kind of, I couldn't help myself. I just started laughing and I got up and I threw my arms around him and gave him a yeah. giant bear hug. And he's yeah. like, why are you laughing? And he's like crying. And I'm like, cause it worked. Like it totally worked. And he's like, dude, I just told you, like, I just had this awful week. And I'm like, but you went five months and then look at you. You're devastated after like a few bad days. I'm like, when you and I first met, you were numb as a door. I said, look at you now. Do you really think that success means you'll never fail again? I'm like, your trajectory is just straight up. Okay, so you have some hiccups and you have some offsets. Okay, fast forward. Guy gets married in the temple uh, the next year. And the week of his wedding, he comes in to get his temple recommend thing signed, you know, whatever. And I say, hey, shut the door for a sec. I'm like, you got to tell me in retrospect. Now it's been over a year. I'm like, what was it? Like, what changed? And he's like, here's the thing. He's like, when we tried this whole service strategy and no longer focusing on the fact that I was an addict, he's like, in retrospect, I began, I had seen myself as an addict. In fact, my whole self-worth was I'm an addict. He's like this weird service thing. And he had counted them. It was several hundred verging on a thousand things that he had done acts of service, writing notes for people, baking things for people, shoving them people's walkways at three in the morning. I mean, you know, it's a great list. Like he said, what happened was the service. I started seeing myself almost like, like as a Robin hood. Mm -hmm. He's like, over time, I saw myself as a really good person and not an addict. And he's like, there was something about seeing myself as good that lowered my desire to do things I shouldn't do. It made me want to be closer to the spirit. So I think what happens is we obsess so much about what we struggle with, which is actually what the adversary wants us to do. It becomes our worth, but that's not our worth, right? And you hear this all the time. People would say things to me like, if I didn't look at porn, I'd probably be married and have kids by now. Mm. Okay, well, I'm not sure how those two are totally correlated, but like we build these things in our head where if I'm struggling with something, my life can't advance. We do this to ourselves. Like somehow my career is tied to the fact that I have a temper or like whatever the correlations are. That's not what the savior says. Can you imagine, Kurt, if you and I went to the other side of the veil tonight and sat with the savior, what's the odds that the savior would say to you, Kurt, you know, that thing you were struggling with because it was so challenging for you. I'm really glad you didn't succeed in the other parts of your life, <laughs> right? Because yeah. you used to, like, but we build these frameworks and that actually becomes our self-worth. And I think as leaders and even as friends, we have to help that not be the point because we all have things we struggle with. Let's make the rest of our lives great. Yeah. So let's engender greatness. So every time someone leave my office, I'm like, I would say, go create something great. And let's, let's start limiting the focus on, oh my gosh, the world's ending because I struggle with X. Yeah. Wow. That's so powerful. And I love the, the first step of like, you recognize that you've got to get rid of the shame that's in it. And that's just 
inviting people and giving them permission to say the next time you quote unquote relapse, oh, well, <laughs> not a big deal. Like it sounds like so elementary or silly, but it, it is that shame spiral that keeps people in this. It absolutely yeah. is. And then you're able to sh- shift his identity. Right. You know, if you have a drinking problem and then you feel terrible about yourself, it's going to exacerbate the drinking problem. Mm-hmm. So what's happening is, is in the name of living the commandments, we're playing Satan's game. Mm. We're playing right into his hands because the message of, of the savior is hope. And even if you're weak, you're great. And yeah. that's what we've got to get better at. We've got to get better. Listen, if I'm a bishop and somebody musters up the courage to walk into my office and vent and unload, they already won. They've already won. Why am I beating on you now? You already won. Yeah. Now, granted, there might be more work to do, Mm -hmm. but the big win just happened. You're owning it. And take the page out of the Alcoholic Anonymous playbook, right? The ownership of our weaknesses is the most powerful step, mm-hmm. right? We have to throw our arms around each other at that point and say, yes, yeah. you win. Yeah. Uh, you know what it. I'm saying? I mean, love it. Yeah. So tell me more about, you know, how you let it sort of this member led repentance and you're there as the quote unquote yeah. judge in Israel, sure. the guy at the keys, right? Yeah. So what did they, I mean, did you generally, I mean, did you not ever restrict the sacrament with those words of two no, weeks, people would restrict their or, own sacrament. So yeah, when they came back, what type of ideas would- were, It was awesome because like, think about if we took 10 members of the church and they were all just really great members of the church and we got in a room and we all talked about what we were struggling with, with no filter. Okay. What would be meaningful to each of us is going to be a little different. So how can each of us have the same exact path to repentance? And bishops create their little seven item checklist. That doesn't work for everybody, right? It's all really personal. So mm-hmm. you got to tell me what's personal. So like for some people, the symbolism of not taking the bread and water is really powerful and it helps them not to take the sacrament. But for other people, it actually helps them to take the sacrament. It's like going to the temple. There's things where we're like, okay, I'm not going to go to the temple because I don't feel totally worthy. And by the way, worthy is one of the wildest words in our culture, okay? <laughs> but I'm not going to go to the temple because I don't feel worthy. But there are times that's the ac- exact place you need to be to draw strength to get over what you're dealing mm-hmm. with. Yeah. And the point is, don't overthink it. Do you really think anybody's going to hell because they did something wrong on Thursday and they took the bread on Sunday? Come on. This is symbolism. I mean, right. this is like, so it's important but it's important because it's personal. So what happens is once somebody is humble and sincere, let them go work with the spirit to figure out what it is they need to do to get where they need to be. Nobody's going to know better than them. Yeah. And then I can just help provide some guardrails or maybe some insights or some motivation or some encouragement or like, and, and I'm telling you, it was, it was probably 95% of the time, whatever the plan was that, that, that they proposed was so great yeah. and things I wouldn't have thought of, Yeah, you know? Yeah. And I'm sure you get the guy that's like, no sacrament for four years. And you're like, okay, <laughs> let's dial it back a little bit. Yeah. Right. I had a and guy that's that, where you can step in. Yeah. Right? I had a guy that lived on a hundred percent government assistance, special needs individual was in his forties and hadn't been to the temple in 12 years because he didn't pay tithing. Mm. I'm like, you have to be kidding me. This is unbelievable. Mm. Get in the temple. Mm-hmm. 
Wow. (laughs) You're living 100% on government assistance and you feel like you should be paying the debt. I mean, we can sit here and debate that all day, right? right? But I mean, but this is not the point. The guy's heart was gold. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about the concept of reframe or help us better understand how you see the membership councils or formerly known as disciplinary councils, right? Because I mean, at the end of the day, like you got to step in somewhere with with some of these things. Yeah, but, but it's last resort. It's last resort. And so what that give it's us a general example. It's absolutely last resort. I mean, it's, look, somebody who's truly humble and sincere, you know, and you need the spirit to help you know, right? But it's tricky. It can be tricky. But we must err on the side of giving people the benefit of the doubt and giving compassion. You know why? Because the Savior's told us from the beginning that that's what we have to do. When we talk about mercy and justice, okay, it's crystal clear that our first requirement is to extend compassion for all, love, understanding, mm. benefit of the doubt, okay? You start there. Then if in the process, somebody is f- almost forcing it into a bad place, then you may need to get into a membership council, mm. right? I mean, of course there are situations you have to have a membership council, but I've also seen lots of people, itchy trigger fingers, Bang, you did this automatic membership council. That's ridiculous. And Mm. that's not at all what the Savior is wanting for us as members of the church. What's the goal? Mm -hmm. Is that the goal? Is the goal to have a black and white checklist? Like which among us wants to be judged in that way? No one. And that is not at all how the Savior operated. Pick up the New Testament, read the first four books again. Show me where it plays that way. It doesn't Mm -hmm. play that way. Yeah, you know. that's powerful. And I just know, like, even if you have to go that way, like all these other things you've built around that, the the de-shaming, the hope, the focus on identity, like even if you have to go down that path, like as I've talked to people, many people who've gone through that disciplinary or the membership council process, it's more of like the additional shame they felt yeah. or the abandonment they felt. Totally. And so yeah, maybe that's part of the process, but you're like, you've established yourself as, as the Sherpa, right? Yeah. Like I'm still right here and ready to the top. And by the way, these are hard things. You know, I met with Elder Ballard one time and had a really heartfelt conversation around, you know, same sex attraction. We had a lot of members of our ward that's, you know, it was a big part of their lives and who they were, you know, and, and, you know, when I talk, I tend to oversimplify a little bit, you know, but, but, but I, I really, I know and, you know, it's been fun these last few months getting ready to be a, a mission leader and meeting with the 12 and sort of getting training from them. You can't believe the compassion. You cannot believe it, it. It's in some ways I'm like, it's amazing listening to them in this training with us new mission presidents. And then how culturally sometimes we like to do things in the church. Like it's like you, you and I both know that the Savior's first, second, and third move is always going to be towards compassion and love and patience and understanding. And and membership counsels the last thing on the list. Yeah. And we all know that. And yeah. so as priesthood leaders, we we must have the true welfare of that person in mind and what's truly best for them. And if we err on that side, we will always come out on the side of the Savior. Yeah. Wow. Inspiring. Tell me about, uh, I don't know how else to frame it. We talked a little bit before, but how you kind of got into trouble and now it's led to you being a mission president. So. Oh my gosh, this was wild. So the war just explodes, right? And we're six months in and I'm working four nights a week and I got this tiny family of three kids, special needs daughter, all this stuff. My poor wife is 
running a house. I think I need to interview her. By herself. Point, yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. And I'm begging Salt Lake to split our ward. It just exploded. And by the way, it was standing room only. And we could have easily filled two wards. Like it was like, and I'm, I'm drowning. And my counselors got special permission to do things that normally only bishops can. Yeah. I mean, we were really get the work done. full yeah. tilt, you know, and I got stonewalled by Salt Lake for months on end. And my stake president, who's just like the greatest guy ever, he's like, man, I don't know what to tell you. This is, we're just not getting anywhere. And then finally, I'm blowing them up directly. Like I'm calling Salt Lake, you know, <laughs> my poor stake president. He's got this rogue bishop, you know, and they finally respond and they say, we're not splitting your ward, Bishop, until you get rid of the 135 members that don't live in the boundaries, you know? Oh, wow. And of course, I knew this was a thing, right? And I knew at some point this was going to like rear its head. Somebody was yeah. going to say something at some point. But here was the deal. Many, many of the people that came to our ward had been not attending a ward at all anywhere. Many. And this was home. And we had a culture and a family in that ward of deep love and concern for one another. I mean, these are a group of singles that share a lot of the same trials and challenges and tremendous deep empathy for one another. I mean, this was home. And what a lot of members of the church don't understand about these singles wards is it's more like your family than any conventional unit. Because if you're 40, you're not going home to mom's house every Wednesday night to do your laundry and get dinner. So this is our family. And I'm looking down that list of 135 members and I'm thinking, there's no way I'm sending that guy out, that girl out. No way I'm telling them to leave. I mean, we were rebaptizing people, lots of them mm -hmm. who had been out for 15 years, maybe been excommunicated or whatever. Yeah. It's working. I'm Don't gonna, fix it. That's right? a, why am I going to turn around and throw them out? You know? And so I say to my stake president, my poor stake president, he's a patient man. I'm like, well, I'm not kicking him out. Somebody's going to have to come do it. <laughs> and, and I explain all this. And then it just goes back and forth and nobody wants to give any ground on this. And finally, one day I got a call from the area presidency one Sunday morning and they're like, we're coming to visit your ward today. So I knew, I knew somebody had sent it up the food chain and we were going to get, you know. So one of the members of the, of the area presidency came down and spent the day with us, went to all of our meetings. And then we had a big meeting with myself and him and the stake president afterwards. And it was amazing. By the way, he's an amazing guy. And we spent an hour and a half at the end of the night downloading with each other. And he looked at me and just said, Bishop, this ward is a special place. There's a special spirit here. I talked to a lot of people that were here today. And he's like, I would absolutely not ask one single person to leave this ward. We'll get you this way. And that was it. And then, you know, and it took some time. It. It's, you know, there's still a lot of red tape. Yeah. In Salt Lake, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, sure, sure. but we got the split and it was great. And, you know, so it was really funny because when I months now, here we are months and months later and I'm in with Elder Cook being interviewed to be a possible mission leader. Mm -hmm. And it came up. He brought it up. Oh, nice. <laughs> So, the rogue so somebody had, you know, shared that story, but somehow that didn't get me kicked out of the church. So, yeah, well, and that's, I mean, this is, there's such this, we're raised in the church to be really good boys. And so we grow up to be really nice guys and we don't want to break the rules. We don't want to push the envelope. Totally. Listen, they gave us handbook. Let's just follow it to the T. Let's not think outside the box. Like let's not wait, make waves. Right. And so that's what's so inspiring about your story is that there is this feeling of like, am I doing, am I in trouble? Yeah. I don't want to be, I'm bishops aren't the type that were in the principal's office growing yeah. up, but like, this is what inspiration, revelation, hope you got the keys, turn on the engine. Do you know how many hours I spent praying about that? I mean, months on end mm -hmm. myself and my counselor, yeah. I mean, my counselors will tell you, they will sit here and tell you the same thing. We, we had a tremendous conviction about protecting the right. one. 
you know, that story, the, the one in the 99, I mean, we are all the one. Yeah. Every one of us is the one. And we really felt deeply about protecting the one. I mean, I couldn't believe it was coming out of my mouth. My wife thought I was nuts. And I just told the state president, who, by the way, agreed with me. But I just told him, I said, they're going to have to release me. I'm yeah. just like, we're not going to do I'm not doing it. Right. Like, these are their souls. Right. Yeah. And they're going to have to come down here and see for and, themselves. And, and you right? told me when you called yeah. me, this is why you were calling me. Yeah. So yeah. you can't get mad at me for doing what you called me to do. Like, right. You know, right. Yeah. That's powerful. So you, what was it like getting released? And I mean, what a remarkable experience. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Three I, year. It was bittersweet. I was tired. Uh-huh. I was really tired. The yeah. last couple of months I was ready. How, you know, how long like, after the split did, or was it during the split? It's that, a while. We, you know, we got the split, all that done and the wheels in motion on that and whatever, yeah. but it's only a three year calling, you know, but it's a sprint for three years. It's really yeah. incredibly taxing, yeah. you know? It was really bittersweet though. It's hard for me to even talk about it here, sitting here with you and not cry. Like yeah. it's the, just the most amazing humans. You know what? It's hard to talk about, but as a culture, sometimes we think, oh, what's wrong with that person? They're 40 years old and they never got married or they've been divorced twice, you know, or what, whatever the thing is, I, man, <laughs> couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah. I and mean, I served in that ward with giants in the kingdom, giants. I mean, you watch, I mean, it, it like some of these people are going to be major leaders in our church and in our culture. And everybody's got their own journey. Everybody, yeah. you know, and, and the plan is different. We've got to get away from this idea that, oh, I got to go on the mission and be married by this point and have the kids. And yeah, I'm 51 and having babies. So I'm a little tired. I, you know, I'm making <laughs> up for lost time, but you know what? I'm glad I had the journey I had. Yeah. I needed that. I needed to learn those lessons, you know? Yeah. So what's the story of uh, being called as mission president? Yeah, it's crazy. So I was building this business a uh, year, about two years ago, my wife calls me one day and we were really lucky. The business was growing like crazy. It's a firm I had wanted to build for a while. Uh, it was kind of building my own firm. And we were in the, you know, last, uh, it's six years old now. So a year and a half ago, four and a half years, firm's growing fast, building it down in Provo. Wife calls me one day and says, okay, I don't want to freak you out, but I just had this like impression that we got to get ready to go on a mission. And I'm like, at the time I'm still the bishop. And I'm like, okay, honey, we have a special needs daughter we're working on another child. We're building, I'm building this business and I'm the bishop of this ward. And I'm like working 25 hours a week at the ward. I'm like, there's just a, like, you're dreaming. Like there's no way. And so a few months go by and I get a phone call from me, a national investment firm. It says, Hey, what do you think about us buying you? And I'm like, and the second I hung up the phone, I remember what Katie had said a few months earlier. And I called her at home. I was on the road and I said, were you serious about that? Like, She's like, yeah, I, I was. She goes, I don't know when, but I really feel like, and I'm like, cause you know, if we were ever going to serve, I'd have to sell the firm. Like I, I can't leave the way that it is now. We'd have to like do mm-hmm. a lot of work to get it, to hand it off and help other people run it and whatever. And, but I still thought she was nuts, but it takes years in our business to transfer a firm. You don't just sell a business and walk away. It's not like technology. This is a relationship business. You know, it's wall street. So felt really good about selling the firm, which is against all the conventional wisdom of selling the firm. We would have made way more money had we waited longer, Uh built the business a lot bigger, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And, but I still wasn't like, oh, I need to sell the firm because we're going on a mission. So we do this deal with this big national firm. And then it was four months later, phone rings Sunday afternoon, Elder Cook's assistant. Hey, we want to, Elder Cook wants to see you and your wife. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And so by this point, we have our fourth child, second special needs kid who we hadn't even adopted, but he's in with us as part of our family working towards adoption. 
And we're barely keeping the wheels on the bus, Katie and I at home. I mean, it's our hands are so full with these kids and, you know, with the business transition and all this. And so we go up and meet and it was an amazing experience. And it's what you've heard so many times. Call came completely out of nowhere, Hmm. but they had been researching us for some amount of time for 12 to 18 months. They said, had a little folder on their desk with our picture on the front. Yeah. Yeah. Elder Cook just starts, you know, grilling us. Hey, what do you think? And I love the, the, you know, these stories of hearing that they didn't, they're not calling the guy who was stake president four times in an area 70. And I yeah. mean, great. Those men are wonderful leaders and I'm glad they're in the mix there, but to mix it up a little bit, yeah, you know, get yeah. the non-traditional guy. In there. And honestly, it's funny because both elder cook and president Iring in those meetings, you know, I was candid with them about my past, you know, and, uh-huh. and it, I, everything wasn't always textbook and, you know, lots of weird textured things and whatever. And they were unbelievable. I mean, we sat, we met with president Iring for over two hours and I've never been in the presence of that kind of love my whole life. I've never felt anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's what I imagine it's like sitting with the Savior. He was so inspiring and so humble. The, the stories that he shared with us that of mistakes he's made, even as a member of the 12, was some of the most inspiring leadership messaging I've ever received. I mean, here's a, a member of the First Presidency just owning his weaknesses and humility. And I, like it was, it's just something I wish everybody could hear. It just, I walked out of there feeling so much more hope about myself, hmm. you know? And then when did the, the call of, of, uh, yeah. Tacoma. Tacoma. Yeah. Yeah. So the way that it works is you kind of do this one interview and they, they kind of kick the tires on you to find out, is there some reason you couldn't serve? Mm-hmm. And then they just say, Hey, you may never hear from us, which is kind of awkward. Cause you know, they're considering to call you to be a mission president, but then they're like, we may never call you. Mm-hmm. And in fact, president Iring said, my brother went through this process and never got a call. It died without ever hearing back from oh, anybody, wow. you know, it was like. <laughs> So he says, you got to be ready for that. And then, but then, yeah, in that meeting with President Iring, there comes a point where he extends the call and it makes it official and then says, hey, we're going to send you a letter in the mail and you'll find out just like the young missionaries do where you're going, you know, but the difference is we can't tell anybody. Yeah. So we're not allowed to open it on Facebook. Right. So it's like, yeah, Yeah. so we get a call and it's been so much fun. My, my kids, we were really worried about how the kids would feel. My two older ones are nine and six. The special need ones are the two younger ones Mm -hmm. and the nine and the six year old it was really funny because one day we were at church and Katie and I knew we were being called, but we hadn't told the kids yet. And I'm in the hallway with them, looking at the missionary plaques on the wall. And we're reading every single one, the verses where the kids went, there's like 20 missionary plaques on the wall. And my son looks at me and he says, he's nine. And he says, dad, I don't think I want to go on a mission. And I'm thinking, oh boy, because we've been trying to figure out how to tell him we're going on a mission, you know? And I'm like, how come bud? And he's like, well, I think I would miss mom and you and mom too much, you know, for two years or whatever. And I laughed and I said, you know, you might feel different at 18. Yeah. I'm like, and then I just like, it came to me in the moment. And I just said, did you know that every once in a blue moon, the prophet asks a whole family to go on a mission together. Oh, that's cool. And him and my daughter just lit up. I mean, they were like, no way. (laughs) They were like, do you think we would ever be asked to do something like that? Uh Of course I knew by this point, you know, and so we built it up. We even had the letter and, but we made them go to the mailbox for a couple of days before we opened the letter, you know, and they were just giddy. So for them, they're young enough that it's a real adventure for them. Yeah. It's not like they're leaving their high school or something like that. Yeah. Awesome. So three years starts in uh, July. Yeah, July 1st. Here we go. I don't know how we're going to make it all happen. Wow. Well, can we uh, touch base in three years? Absolutely. See, see do part two here? Yeah, yeah. I'm sure That's I'll have good. all kinds of weird stories <laughs> that, to share. It's, it's going to be awesome. Man, no, don't get sent home early. No, you gotta... <laughs> no, man, I cannot wait. My mission president meant so much to me in my yeah. life. You know, no week yeah. has gone by that I don't think about him and his lessons. I And as for as stressful as all the stuff is going on the mission, 
as a family, I can't wait to get up with those missionaries. Yeah. I cannot wait. Like, yeah. and I already think Tacoma is the greatest mission in the world. I've never been to Tacoma. So here we go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll, we'll make our name proud. Okay. <laughs> we'll do. So, Thanks, uh, Kurt. Last question I have for you is as you reflect on your time as a leader, how has being a leader helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ? Oh, the compassion, the compassion. You know, I, I'm sad to say, you know, I think for a lot of us, when we're young, we're really black and white. And I was, and I, I wish I wouldn't have been, you know, I, I just feel tremendous sympathy and compassion for the, the complex trials and pain that people wear, the little personal hells that no one else knows about, you know, and I, it's changed me, you know, and, and man, I got a lot of things I don't do well, but I'm a lot more compassionate to what I, to others than I was a few years ago, you know, and I feel like, I feel like I have a lot of, I need to make up for lost time, to be honest with you, you know, when I was younger and more crazy and, you know, but I think that's the gift. I think that the savior spent his whole ministry time to show us that if we'll give to others, that's when we get, you know, if we will lift others, serve others, love others, give them the benefit of the doubt, you know, that we will win. And so that's why I feel like when we struggle, the, the, the hack, so to speak, of struggling is go lift others. We have to not focus on our own. And if we'll go give, he'll lift us, you know, and, and that's where the compassion, you know, kind of plays in. That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. Hey, listen, would you do me a favor? You know, everybody's got that friend who listens to a ton of podcasts, and maybe they aren't aware of Leading Saints. So would you mind taking the link of this episode or another episode of Leading Saints and just texting it to that friend? You know who I'm talking about, the friend who always listens to podcasts and is always telling you about different podcasts. Well, it's your turn to tell that friend about Leading Saints. So share it. We'd also love to hear from you. If you have any perspective or thought on this episode, you can go to leadingsaints.org and actually leave a comment on the episode page or reach out to us at leadingsaints.org slash contact. Remember, solve the burden of meetings by visiting leadingsaints.org slash 14 and getting 14 days access to the Meetings with Saints virtual library. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.